session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I talk about the book of the week from this past week, this week's book of the week is called Awkward, The Science of Why We Are Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome by Tai Tashiro. So the title of the book is Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. Usually I do the books on Monday, but next Monday here in the United States, we'll be celebrating Memorial Day, so I won't do a live show. So I'll talk about this book on next Wednesday's show. Uh, The book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock. Tyrannical Minds, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. Uh, This book... um, was a very compelling read. I was very interested to read the profiles that were in the book of different tyrants throughout history, including Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Saddam Hussein, amongst others. But also the book itself talks about the history of profiling to some degree and in that way introduces the argument of should we do profiling at all? Should we try to psychologically profile people, um, especially In this case, we're talking about people from a distance, let's say foreign leaders who the psychiatrist or psychologists who are trying to make an assessment have never actually met the individual to do a thorough evaluation. And so there can be some argument made that, well, is there any value of doing a psychological profile of someone from afar? And so he starts off by sharing the story of Walter Langer, who was a psychoanalyst who Uh, was asked to do a psychological profile about Adolf Hitler. And he actually did pretty well in the predictions that he did make about him. And he lists some of the predictions he made and how they actually did seem um, to match up with what happened based on what he saw of him. And was based on accounts from, of course, never from him personally, but from people who knew him or things were written or even his own writing that they try to make this type of an assessment. But now people would argue um, we're not going to be so accurate, so should we do these profiles at all, especially when it's from a distance? And as he mentions the book, and I agree, um, first of all, we're always psychologically profiling one another. We might not call it that, but we're constantly interacting with people and assessing their psychology, their psyche, their personality, and that can affect the ways we interact with them, or even if we choose to interact with them or not. If you're dating someone or if you're uh, doing a job interview, you're essentially going to do some psychological profiling to see 
how you assess and judge that person's character and personality to see if it's someone you want to interact with further. And even just in our day-to-day, we are doing that as well. So often when I meet people and they ask me what I do for a living and I say I'm a psychologist, a very common response is for people to say, are you analyzing me right now? Which brings up a lot of things. One is um, how people view psychology in the field in general for being judgmental in a way, but also oftentimes it does reflect that we are insecure about parts of ourselves, and we're afraid that if someone sees us, what they will see. But I'll leave that um, for another time. But oftentimes my response is something along the lines of, in a way I am, but all of us are doing that. So when you are meeting people, you might not be analyzing them in some professional sense or analyzing them to come to some specific diagnosis, but you are trying to understand them and analyze them in that way. If you meet five people, you'll be able to say, this one was more fidgety and nervous, this person was more talkative and confident. Now you might not be able to distinguish or you might not be sure if it's genuine confidence or if they're being arrogant or having narcissism, something that I'll talk about briefly because it shows up in virtually anyone who becomes a dictator. But we're always evaluating and assessing one another. And so we're doing it to be in with, but also we um, are going to try to interact, let's say, with the foreign leader. We're going to approach them in some way. Why not try to inform that with some level of understanding and analysis to get a better picture or to potentially aid us in what we can do? And we have to be realistic. Are we going to be 100% accurate? Well, of course not, even if you were to analyze someone and give them a whole battery of psychological tests in person, we wouldn't say you would have 100% accuracy to be able to predict what they're going to do and how they'd react to different situations. So, of course, if you're doing the work from secondhand sources and not directly able to interview the subject, you're going to have even less um, predictability in what you can do, but it doesn't mean you can't come up with anything, that it won't be, uh, that it won't have any value. As I mentioned, Walter Langer did a pretty good job with Adolf Hitler. And in the book, Dr. Haycock shares the example of how Jimmy Carter said that in his Camp David Accords, the where he did negotiations between um, the Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, in September of 1978, he said that the profiles he had for both of those leaders were very valuable in helping him negotiate. And interestingly, he would shuttle back and forth between the two leaders to to make the um, agreements and to go back and forth with them. And he said that it was very important for him, or the information he gleaned from those psychological profiles that he got from the intelligence agencies was very helpful to him. And so we see that it can be helpful. Are we going to get it wrong? Sometimes, of course, as we are in any field that involves prediction, and especially in psychology and psychiatry, that will be the case. But it doesn't mean it does not have value. So I definitely think we should continue to do that. And again, we have the humility that knowing that, no, we can't predict for sure, but that we can add some value um, that will not just be able to predict 100%, but can be guiding us, as in the case of uh, President Carter, who said that he used some of the information to help him guide the negotiations. It wasn't that he had a recipe that he followed, but it gave him some knowledge and awareness of both individuals that he was able to use in his favor and in the favor of coming to some kind of an agreement. 
Now, there's also an argument that some people make when it comes to things like trying to profile uh, current but even past leaders who, like um, Adolf Hitler, had been so evil in their actions and what they did that makes people think we shouldn't try to even justify and understand them. And not only that, they're in some ways one-offs, this, this evil human being that isn't like any other human being or isn't even human. He's just this evil uh, thing. And so to try to understand him, one, you can't because he's just unique. And so we can't make comparisons to other human beings. And two, um, we don't want to try to understand them because in that way we're almost trying to justify what he did. And I mentioned this on last week's show because I'd started the book I thought this was an important point to make, that um, explanation is not justification. So if we try to understand what might have contributed to someone doing what they did and acting the way they did, it doesn't mean that we're justifying what they did. So if someone says, my cousin burned down my house, I might ask what happened, not because I think what you did warranted them to burn down their house, but I want to understand the situation. It's not to justify what the person did, but we try to understand it. And so that's one piece, that understanding explanation is not justification. But then the second and very important part to me is that we want to understand who that person was and what circumstances contributed to the development of them and what they were able to unfortunately uh inflict upon people and millions of people so that it doesn't happen again. We want to learn from history so as to not repeat those same mistakes. And as much as we'd like to think, one, that Hitler, someone like him or Stalin, were just individuals and no one else will ever be like them and history will never repeat what has happened in the past because those are just such unique circumstances, we have to be more realistic and recognize that history does tend to repeat itself, especially if we're not aware of what has happened or we don't learn from those mistakes or uh, what has happened in the past, but that it's not such a unique thing for dictators to arise and for things like genocide and mass killings to happen. Unfortunately, they are far too common and continue up into present day. We can't hope that they'll disappear because they won't. Things happen. And so rather than thinking that we're putting the lives in vain or taking the deaths in vain of people who were lost due to people like Stalin and Hitler um, or Saddam Hussein by trying to understand what's happening, I actually think it's almost the other way around. If we ignore and don't try to understand what's happened, we're losing those lives in vain by saying we're not going to try to understand it to prevent it from happening. We don't want to let it happen again. So um, in that way, I very much agree with the author that there is a lot of value in trying to understand these people more. And also, as I might touch upon, it's not just about these people because dictators don't just arise in a vacuum and they don't tend to arise when things are stable in a country or in a time of the world. They almost always arise when there is instability after some type of economic downturn, even a depression or recession that allows for someone to arise in this way. And so he um, talks about people who become dictators and tyrants in general, but also um, he goes into specific profiles of several of them, including Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, um, Saddam Hussein, uh, Kim Jong-un has 
um, a chapter who he's a current tyrant who's still in power and, and several others, Idi Amin, and um, gets into the details of both their background and what they went through their childhood, but then also the things that they did. And so as always, we can get into debate of nature versus nurture. And then as always, we find that it's always going to be both. It's very rarely do we find any trait that's going to be just nature or just nurture. Uh, so it's not just the genetics or it's not just the environment. It's going to be the combination of these things. And so we see the same when it comes to people who become dictators, that they are not just born that way, um, but and it's not just their environment, but it tends to be the combination of these things, these factors that come together to bring about someone in this way. And so when we look at dictators, there are several different personality types or traits that come up that we tend to see in all of them, and some of them have different names. For example, there is the dark triad, which includes things of like narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And Machiavellianism is a term that comes from the writer, political scientist, uh, Nicola Machiavelli from, the, from Italy in the 1500s, who wrote the book The Prince. And it's a way of representing uh, people who use uh, maneuvers in a way to get power and will really do anything at their disposal to, disposal to get power, whether it involves lying, deception, manipulation, even killing someone to eliminate people who might be a challenge to them. But this um, personality trait comes from that um, individual, Nicola Machiavelli, but being Machiavellian means that you are willing to manipulate, steal, lie, cheat, do whatever it takes to get power, that really power is the ultimate thing you're looking for, and you will really do whatever it takes to get it. Um, people also will talk about malignant narcissism, and that includes narcissistic features of narcissistic personality disorder, along with aggression, antisocial or psychopathic traits, and paranoid traits. So uh, narcissistic personality disorder or narcissism in general, when we're talking about it in a pathological form, involves um, a grandiose way of looking at ourselves and wanting to be treated in a way that means that people show we're better than others. They tend to have difficulties with empathy and connecting with other people but because they see themselves as different than others. So there's a preoccupation with the self, uh, grandiose ideas about the self, that they should get special attention, special treatment, um, and things of that sort. Uh, also, psychopathy, which sometimes people will call it sociopathy or antisocial features, involves uh, not, again, having issues with empathy, lacking remorse and guilt for doing bad actions, being very okay with hurting others without really concern for how it affects them, only thinking about themselves. And so those traits can go together, um, the narcissism and the antisocial side, and that's why it can become malignant because it means it's even more damaging when those two come together. And also paranoid traits as well in the malignant narcissism. So these are just some features that we see in a lot of dictators. Now, because 
Um, sometimes I'll just do one segment on a book, but this one I wanted to devote a little bit more time. I'll talk a bit more about this book after the break, which is Tyrannical Minds, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship by Dr. Dean A. Haycock. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back. I'm talking about the book Tyrannical Minds by Dr. Dean Haycock, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. And I, before the break, I was talking about some of the characteristics or personality traits that seem to be common amongst dictators, things like narcissism, antisocial or psychopathic tendencies, Machiavellianism. And so there's different names. We have the dark triad, the dark tetrad, and then new uh, term which is called the general dark factor of personality or a d factor which includes these traits of machiavellianism narcissism sadism and psychopathy and so we see these traits common in people that become dictators that they tend to have overlapping personalities or personality traits that seem to make sense for someone who's going to be a dictator and what was interesting is reading the stories of how the different dictators came to power uh, other than a few of them such as kim jong-un who was basically inherited his dictatorship the rest had to rise to power people like adolf hitler and joseph stalin and you see how they use some of these traits like the machiavellianism where they are willing to manipulate and lie and then once they start to get some power even uh if they had friends, people who had helped them, they don't mind turning on them, turning on them in multiple ways from just turning on them and turning their backs to them, but even killing them once they get power, which is a very common uh, practice done by dictators. So you see these traits and how they play out. And also often you see in the history things like child abuse, an abusive father that many of them experience, not necessary, but oftentimes you'll see that, which also... Uh, makes sense as well but the the paranoia is an interesting trait that one quote stood out to me and i think he, he it's a, one of the subtitles of the chapter on saddam hussein and so when we see paranoia first we can understand this in several ways one is they would be paranoid to begin with if they've had a bad experience and of course it could be genetic as well but then also when you start to act in the ways that these individuals act you could understand that they're creating an environment where paranoia might even make some sense. It tends to become a pathological thing. But if you've killed many people and if you've turned on friends and hurt many people, you can understand that you might be on the lookout for people to come after you. So there's that, that aspect of it. But then there's also the projection side. If I myself tend to have sadistic tendencies, Machiavellian tendencies, where I'm looking for ways to manipulate people, and on top of that, the way I got to power was either through a coup or um, overpowering people and treating people poorly, then of course I'm going to be afraid of people overpowering me, people coming for my power in that same way. So they're often very paranoid looking for people who are going to be coming after them and they have a very hard time trusting even friends or people that they're close with and might even um, keep their friends at a distance or have friends compete with each other so that they can't no one person gains too much power that's another theme you see is that once any of their even friends or 
allies starts to gain power, they get threatened by that and will find a way to either take away their power or take away their lives if need be. But this quote from Saddam Hussein, which displays the paranoia, was, I know they are conspiring to kill me long before they actually start planning to do it. Which is interesting, showing that he he says, "I'm before they've even planned it, I see that that person is going to plan it and would want to come kill me or that group would want to come kill me. And sometimes maybe you could be right that you can see the seeds of of the plan or the seeds of people who might turn against you at some point, but we can also see this at some level of paranoia that these people are looking out for someone to kill them and very often are killing people who are innocent and would have no plans of taking over, but they're just going to kill them because of their paranoia. So we see these different traits play out in the individuals who become dictators. And and that part is interesting too, in seeing the history and seeing their personal stories and how they developed and what they did. Now, as I mentioned before, um, and I, why I think a book like this and this uh, concept is so important for us to keep in mind is that a dictator is not just an individual that no matter what would come to power and lead the way they did. There has to be the right context politically, culturally, in the society, in the world, economically, that allows for them to rise. And we can learn from that. So there's that part of understanding the history. But also, we have to recognize that people are complicit in allowing someone to become a dictator. Very often, the narcissistic leader will come in during a time of instability or unpredictability and have that confidence that they will take over and I alone will fix it, something you hear often in some dictators like Adolf Hitler and not saying that he is a dictator, but we did hear those same words from Donald Trump at the Republican convention where he said, I alone can fix the problems that America is currently facing. But someone comes in with that confidence that I can protect you. I can lead us to goodness, lead us to greatness as we had, or as we've experienced. And very often there's a theme of blaming a scapegoat, whether it's people of some religion or race or whatever, whoever might be very commonly foreigners. So immigrants will be the ones that get blamed. And so we see that dictators tend to rise when certain conditions are there. And we have to try to be aware of what those conditions are, because that's when a society or a country or a region is more vulnerable to a dictator rising to power. And again, we have the power to not let them get that power. It is not just something that happens on its own or that is not stoppable. If we have that awareness, we might be able to make a difference. Not exactly in the same way because Adolf Hitler, of course, caused so much damage and killed so many people in in his rule. But we know that Winston Churchill had some realistic view of him more than others might have before, seeing that he did have, maybe he saw some of the traits or he was aware of some things that might give him, give him an indication that he could cause a lot of damage, unlike Chamberlain, that allowed for him to say that we need to take him more seriously. And in the book First Rate Madness um, by Nasir Ghaemi, which I read last year and shared with you, he was talking about how it was actually because of Winston Churchill's depression that he experienced for most of his life, the black dog that he talked about, that he was able to have a more realistic approach 
and was able to see that darker side better than most people. He had more of a realistic, uh, even if you might think of it as pessimistic during that time, which you might have been viewed, but it was more realistic. And that might have saved many lives or had a positive effect. But we have to also be aware that it can happen again, and it can happen here, which is the end of the book talks about um, how it can happen here, as in it could be United States, but really the here could be anywhere, and having that awareness. And the end of the book, I did not expect this based on the cover and what I I thought the book was going to be about, talked a lot about Donald Trump and um, the controversy that's come up revolving him in general, with so many controversies, but especially about his mental health and how many psychiatrists and psychologists have gone um, very outspoken trying to make their diagnoses or their statements about him. And this has a lot of history to it also, because there's something in psychiatry in the mental health field called the Goldwater Rule. So in the 1964 presidential election, there was a poll of over 12,000 psychiatrists about um, Mr. Barry Goldwater, who was running for president. And the results from that poll were published in, a, I think, a magazine or newspaper. And it said that people have, these psychiatrists have declared that he's unfit to be president. And they get, came up with diagnoses such as paranoid schizophrenia, psycho, psychosis, megalomania, paranoid personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. And this had a significant impact on the presidential election, or at least he felt it did, and he actually sued and he won. And in reaction to that, the American Psychiatric Association uh, issued what has now come to be known as the Goldwater Rule, which essentially is that no psychiatrist uh, really or psychologist can share a diagnosis on someone they have not personally interviewed and evaluated. So in all these cases, when we're doing psychoanalysis from afar, trying to analyze someone from far away, we're no longer allowed to do that. Now, I think what happened with uh, the presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, and the diagnosis that people gave him was definitely too extreme. And people might have crossed their line professionally in what they shared, but to essentially put a gag order on all mental health professionals from sharing any opinions about people who are in politics, I think is also a mistake. I think it's an overreaction and many people have called for there to be a revisiting of this Goldwater rule to see if we can come up with something more balanced. And I think that is uh, the wise thing to do. Should people just willy-nilly be throwing out diagnoses about people, especially when we know psychologists and psychiatrists are human beings and they'll have their own political leanings? No, I think we have to be careful about that. But does that mean that mental health professionals should not be allowed to share their opinions about anyone um, who is running for office? I don't think so. Or even that we shouldn't think about the mental health of our world leaders, of our candidates. Uh, some people have suggested, and I think it makes sense, that the president or even, I think, candidates, so we figured this out before they're eligible to be the president, should go through some kind of a screening, mental health screening, to get a better understanding how stable they are, how mentally fit they are. And yes, this will create a whole host of its own controversies of what does it mean and who's going to determine what type of mental health or how we're going to measure mental health and say the standard is for someone to be president. All of us have psychological issues, so where are we going to draw the line? 
And so that's going to be difficult, but I don't think because it's difficult, we shouldn't start these conversations and start to create new movements to understand how we can be more mindful of how our candidates are doing mentally and emotionally, psychologically, where they stand. That is something that is very important. So I'm in favor of revisiting the Goldwater rule that no, we shouldn't just make diagnoses from afar, no matter what, but we should have the ability to have mental health professionals give their opinions on these matters. And it should be just taken as opinions and not facts, but that is important. And on top of that, even with the Goldwater rule, it does seem that at times it's more about the specific diagnoses. So let's say you don't want to claim that a candidate is diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, but I think we can say that someone has narcissistic traits at least. Um, and so the last two chapters or so talks a lot about Donald Trump and different things that have come up um, during his campaign and different mental health professionals that came forward. I read the book, I don't know if it was last year, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, which was a compilation of articles written by many different mental health professionals talking about their concern. Uh, but I think we do need to have the space for these conversations and this kind of discourse, and we shouldn't just say because of this rule that was created over 50 years ago, um, be out of a reaction to something that was done poorly, the way it was handled uh, by those psychiatrists or that poll, that we should never talk again about political uh, individuals or political figures because we don't want to make these diagnoses from far away. So even having a commission of mental health professionals that would either evaluate the candidates or be able to give their opinion, I think would be important. Even if we are not in the mental health field, all of us are giving our psychological assessments of the candidates when we want to endorse them or vote for them. We're saying we think they're okay, or we're saying this presidential candidate is to this or to that. And based on that, making our decisions, why make it so that mental health professionals can't share their opinions also? Um, and so the last part of the book talks a bit about the Goldwater rule and, and many professionals sharing their opinions, but also some thoughts on Donald Trump, which I'll, I'll leave um, for now. But uh, the book itself does a great job of getting into psychological profiling, what it is, the value it can have, and definitely I think it does have, and then getting deeper into the psyches of different tyrants and dictators throughout history, um, especially most of them the 20th century, and uh, also with some thoughts on what that can mean going forward. So highly recommend this book, Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock, a very interesting read uh, that I'd highly recommend to you if you have not read it already. And the book of the week for this week, again, is Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome by Tai Tashiro. All right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So today I was talking about the book Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock. And in the book, it discusses psychological profiling and how some people think that because uh, we can't predict things very well or 100% or they doubt that there's any benefit in doing so, that we shouldn't do it all together. And it, it made me think of this concept of hard sciences versus soft sciences that is sometimes used and fields such as physics or biology 
might be considered hard sciences, and then the social sciences, such as psychology and sociology, tend to be looked at as soft sciences. And so the hard scientists, there, there's different ways of looking at it. I'm no expert on it, but often it's because you can get very specific uh, numbers and data, and it's very quantitative, and the type of methods used make it seem like it's more of a hard science that you can measure things in a certain way. Whereas in the soft sciences, it's not so rigorous in that same way, or you don't get the same numbers, or sometimes we try to assign numbers to things, which I actually think can be an issue at times, to make it seem more like a hard science, and that itself can be an issue. And so the soft sciences are very uh, often stigmatized as not as important, not as good, that we don't we shouldn't give them as much attention. And this can even accept, uh, affect things like funding, that how much are we going to fund different sciences? Well, if it's a soft science and really in that way makes it seem like it's unreliable or it's not worth investing money in, we shouldn't put money into studying them. Whereas the hard sciences, we can definitely um, be clear about the results or because they're hard sciences, that means that they're more valuable. So we should invest money in them. And I think this is a mistake. Of course, let me make it very clear. As a clinical psychologist, a member of one of the fields that's considered a soft science, I have my biases and I have reasons to want soft sciences to get more recognition or to not have that stigma. But I'll, I'll share my, my thoughts nonetheless with that disclaimer to start. So because things can't be uh, completely measured or we can't be 100% sure about something or predict something 100% doesn't mean it does not have value. To begin with, most things can't be predicted 100% of the time, even in the hard sciences. Um, but even still, just because we can't have perfect prediction or just because we can't measure something completely in a quantifiable way all the time, doesn't mean it doesn't have value to study those things. It doesn't mean that we can't start to see patterns and understand things about, let's say, human psychology that can have an effect on things like relationships, on education, on how we provide funding for different things, and that they don't have value. Uh, one thing I did allude to earlier that I think can be an issue is that at times fields like psychology, in order to try to look more like a hard science in the traditional sense, will try to quantify everything, which does have some value, but sometimes we take away the value when we try to make happiness a number or even depression a number. It can have value because it can aid in studying to some degree, but sometimes we lose something by trying to quantify everything. And so, for example, when we try to quantify depression, um, it can have some value in allowing us to have certain studies that we can use certain statistics on, but sometimes we lose sight of what depression is functionally, or we don't realize that what we might consider depression might actually be many different things. And this has actually come up when some people look at the analysis of depression and then the research on depression, that sometimes we say that, okay, depression went up or went down based on this medication, but we didn't recognize that some features of depression or some types of depression, and maybe there are different types, might respond to medications or treatments in different ways, but because we're lumping all depression as one thing by, for example, having people uh, check off a list 
of different symptoms or different features, we don't recognize these differences and distinctions. And so I sometimes think we can lose something by trying to quantify things, even though we think we're gaining making it something we can study and turning it into a hard science, sometimes we lose something. So I'll read research in psychology at times where they'll create numbers for things quantifying, okay, we're going to measure happiness in this way. And then they'll do some very extensive statistics based on their data of happiness. And then they'll talk about that, those numbers in some ways as if they're truths or some experiences when it's not so clear that this is the case. So I think we have to be careful about quantifying things. That being said, as I mentioned before, just because something is hard to measure um, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to measure it. So I think it's good that we continue to do these things, but we have to be aware of, at times, how we can lose sight of what something really is when we try to turn it into a number, especially when we're talking about things in psychology. Like when you try to quantify love, I don't know what that really means, and it's going to be very complex. When you try to quantify something like temperature, it's much more clear what we're talking about and how to measure it. And so we have to be aware of when we try to quantify things, something actually might be lost, even though we think we are gaining something. Um, but coming back to this idea that the soft sciences are not as important or not as good or not a science, even because they are not like physics, chemistry, biology, which can be measured in particular ways. Um, relationships are... Uh, again, with my bias, maybe the most important things we have as human beings. Or one of the things that when we do studies on happiness, which yes, I mentioned how that could be hard to quantify, but it does seem to be a theme in a lot of research on well-being, contentment, fulfillment, is our relationships or the quality of our relationships. And studying relationships is difficult because how do you measure them? There's cultural biases that get involved. Um, there's just measurement issues that are always going to be there. But we do see patterns that make sense. For example, um, abusing a child, maybe you have a hard time trying to quantify certain parts of it, but we'd understand that it's hurting the child's development. We don't need to um, be able to use a thermometer, so to speak, to figure that out. Now we can try to understand that better, but we shouldn't just throw that away. And so even I think losing qualitative research can be an issue in this way, that we don't just try to make everything into numbers, we have to try to understand them better. But I, I hope we don't lose sight of the importance of fields like psychology. Something I hear often is people will say, uh, when you tell them about therapy, they say, oh, my husband or my wife or my child doesn't believe in psychology or doesn't believe in therapy, which makes it seem almost like we're talking about a religion. Do you believe in it or not? Um, and yes, you have to believe in something if, to actually put the money and the time into utilizing a service or, or a treatment. Um, but it's not something about just belief. There is the research that's showing that it does help. And yes, maybe you say the research that we do in psychology doesn't look like other research, but we do have the research that's there. And I don't think it should be completely dismissed because it doesn't get measured in the same way well-being is very important and we're talking about important issues relationships like i was just talking about suicide we can try to understand suicide better and with that knowledge hopefully save lives that's very very important i think anyone would agree and so just because things are hard to measure in psychology or it's 
difficult doesn't mean we should just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say we shouldn't study these things. Absolutely, we should. And I would hope we continue to devote lots of resources to these types of things. Because if we don't, we'll continue to pay the price. Um, we're making decisions all the time with what to do with money and how to live our lives. But we can try to understand it more and more and better and better to see how we can live better lives, how we can create a better society. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that we sometimes don't recognize the things that have value. And here is where it does get very difficult because I have biases of what I think are the right way to live life, the right way to have a family or treat a family or how we should invest in things or how we should treat human beings. And it might be different than someone else's values, which could come into play. Me and some other psychologists have our own beliefs that will affect things, our own political leanings that will affect the way that we approach things or what we think is the good life or the way people should live, our own family histories, our own issues, all of those things come into play. So I understand there are challenges when it comes to a field like psychology and trying to make progress and what even progress means. I talked about the book Mind Fixers just a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was a great history of psychiatry and uh, specifically how I was trying to find biological causes for different psychiatric disorders with little success, we can say. A lot more can be done, but little compared to what we expected to have done up to this point. But we see throughout history how the biases of the people who were in power in the mental health fields affected severely how people were treated. For example, racist uh, features were very common in how things were diagnosed, continues to be a case, but even more so before, where certain races were considered less intelligent or less moral or ethical in certain ways because of clear biases of the people who were making the decisions. And of course, most often it was white men. So it was biased towards the white race and towards men. We look at things like hysteria and how women were expressing what likely was their, psych their, their political oppression and their impression in society with physical and psychological symptoms. But it was seen as a weakness of the women, not actual weakness of the society, which really was the case. So these fields are delicate in that objectivity is a lot harder when we're talking about psychology. And I recognize that. And it's important for us to have these conversations about these fields. And even for myself, I try to be aware of biases I bring into the way I look at things. That yes, I favor certain things, maybe because of things that have happened to me, maybe because of the ways I've aligned myself with other people because of how it looks, whatever it might be, I know that the same mind I'm using to try to understand what's the best way to be human has its own biases within it. And that makes it very difficult. Some things are a little bit more objective and that makes it easier to study like um, things in physics. Now, of course, we see that even in those fields, biases come into play that very often, as much as we think of science as self-correcting, which it is, that self-correction can take longer because the scientists themselves have biases. They don't want to let go of certain theories that they've uh, understood to be the truth, or especially theories if they've contributed to them. If your name is on a theory, of course, you want that theory to last a little bit longer and will be clinging on to it. And so even in the hard sciences, we see that because it's done by human beings, it does get affected by human biases and human tendencies 
that that can be played out. But I, reading this book, um, The Tyrannical Minds um, by Dean A. Haycock, not The Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock, made me think about how he talks about should we be doing profile at all or how people think we shouldn't be profiling or that there is no value to it, but that absolutely there is. And we can try to understand people more and more and understand relationships and human psychology better and to also see the factors that contribute to certain things happening in history. And that should be something that we all take very seriously. And so I've, I've talked to many people who will discuss psychology as a soft science and it's not that they consider soft different than hard when they say that they're saying that a soft science is somehow weaker than the harder sciences and I, I disagree with that and I also think that as psychology we have to be careful not to try to act like a hard science and even in that book uh, Mind Fixtures by Anne Harrington I think that's what we've seen in the history of psychiatry that because we want to so much be a hard science and in mental health that we want to find some biological causes that are very clear for all the mental disorders which maybe there is but sometimes there might not be and so i think it's wonderful that people who are studying the brain are continuing to do so and i hope they will continue and i hope as i talked about funding more funding will be donated to those um, types of expeditions to understand the brain even further to see how it relates to mental illness but it can at times be our desire to be like the hard sciences that we get away from some of the ways of studying behavior and humans that might be an issue as well. And that's something I think worth thinking about, that we shouldn't lose sight of the behavioral things that we can observe, things we see in relationships. The brain is incredibly important and probably the most intricate piece of, if you want to call it machinery, that we've ever encountered. So I think we should continue to study it, continue to study it for years and years to come. But I hope we don't lose sight of making sure we see what we're talking about when it comes to psychology. We're looking at relationships and interactions. There's some things that aren't just about uh, making it down to a hard science that we don't want to lose sight of. And even trying to quantify things, I think, can be an issue at times. Yes, we sometimes need it in research, but that's just because we want to get statistics that we can use for p-values, but we're not recognizing what we might be losing when we quantify certain constructs, that every construct can't be quantified in a way that doesn't mean something won't be lost. We have to be very, very aware of that because I'll see studies that says um, happiness goes down with this, 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 but we have to look at how they measured happiness, what did it mean, and of course that's going to have the biases of the researchers in there, and that can affect things. And so these things become very complicated, but as I mentioned, just because they're complicated or difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to work on them. And so I hope we'll continue to do research in psychology, but do it as a hard science, but also as a soft science, and recognize that doesn't have to be a bad thing, that we should study things both ways. We should quantify things when we can, but recognize that something can be lost and recognize that qualitative research can be very helpful too um, and give us lots of insights as well. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Wednesday, Monday will be a holiday, is Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome by Tai Tashiro. All right, thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Hope you have a wonderful night. 